And thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 151, Obedience Unto Death. Last time, we saw elements of the Waffen-SS play important roles in the fall of the Netherlands. Not that everything was perfect, but the soldiers' desire to prove themselves and their tenacity could not be denied. However, that was a far cry from being accepted by the regular army, the Wehrmacht. For now, there was still a war on with other countries. With the Dutch capitulating on May 14th, the Liebstandata and 9th Panzer were selected to drive through the streets of Amsterdam to impress the locals of Nazi Germany's might. As for the other elements of General von Bock's Army Group B, now that this country was subdued, it was time to look to the south. On May 18th, after a few days' rest, German troops entered Belgium. But going back for a moment, when the Liebstandarte was readying to attack Rotterdam on the 14th, the SSV Division was still covering their comrades' southern flank. Moreover, they were preparing to start their own offensive. Their next assignment was the area of Zeeland, the westernmost and least inhabited part of the Netherlands. However, stationed there now were French troops. The Germania Regiment would continue holding back the French, while the Deutschland Regiment would take the lead in the Zeeland assault. Being backed by the division's artillery, it was decided, as it had been before, to divide this regiment into two battle groups. One centered around Witt's battalion, and the other around Kleinheisterkamp's battalion. Their objectives were South Bevlan and the nearby island of Walkeren. As South Bevlan was connected to the mainland, that would be attacked first. Then, on the far side, would come the turn of the island. But that could wait. Perhaps the French would withdraw before the SS soldiers got that far. On May 15th, elements of the two battle groups reached the first serious waterway, blocking them, the South Bevlin Canal. It was close to 100 yards wide and had open fields of fire. Yet, reconnaissance said that something like only two battalions of French infantry were on the other side. So this was doable. The SS officers just had to be smart about it. So, waiting until dark, the SS artillery was brought forward, and earlier reports told them where to strike. At 10 a.m. the next day, May 16th, Witt's battle group climbed aboard their rubber boats and paddled over just as fast as they could. Over their heads were their comrades' shells raining down on the defenders. It took two hours of patient maneuvering, but a bridgehead was in place by noon. Seeing this, the French began to back away. With fewer defenders than before, Klein Heisterkamp's battle group also crossed, a little to the north. True, they were shot at, but the firing lost its intensity as the SS men got closer to shore. Now that the waterway was crossed, pontoons were laid down, and the motorcycles, trucks, armored cars, and light tanks raced across. This speed was maintained as they dashed across South Bevland. In fact, the end of the peninsula was reached before the French could get away, even across to the island of Walkeren. The Waffen-SS had netted another 
2,000 POWs. Even better for Himmler's troops, the French had started evacuating the far western island the previous day, as the Dutch government had given up. Yet there were still significant numbers on the island, which started a race of sorts. Could they embark before the Germans figured out a way to get across? To Commander Felix Steiner, this was not a moment of feints or subtleness, but courage. He would send over the Deutschland's Ninth Company across 1,600 yards of open ground. But if they could establish a bridgehead, then the rest of the men could be sent. But as the Ninth Company moved out on May 17th, the French quickly pinned them down, despite the heavy fire supporting the SS soldiers. Soon the Germans were forced to lie down and add to the suppression fire. This dash wasn't going to work, and the casualties started adding up. Unit by unit, the decimated Ninth Company was pulled back. Darkness made it possible for the last of the company to head back to safety. Knowing he made a mistake, that the army would celebrate this, Steiner called on the Luftwaffe for even more intense suppression fire. Why? Because his men were going back across that field. No one would be able to say that the Waffen-SS were cowards, nor that they weren't willing to bleed for the fatherland. Early the next morning, May 18th, Stukas flew over the enemy, bombing the Frenchmen either from high altitude or dive-bombing when it was possible. This, combined with the SS artillery, forced the French to keep their heads down and their hands off their guns. This time, the 10th Company of Kleinheisterskamp's battle group went across the field, but they had an easier time of it than did Witt's men. When they reached the French line, the rest of the battle group joined them. The battle groups were able to come together by 7.15 p.m., but the French were already gone, running towards Wisslingen, the city on the southwest part of the island. By the time the battle groups reached Wisslingen, they dejectedly watched as the last French destroyers were sailing away, their comrades on board. The Germania regiment had achieved another objective given to them, but they could now only imagine the rewards and praise had they been able to march back to their commander with thousands more of French POWs. But the war with France wasn't over yet. Allowed a short rest only, the De Fuhrer was joined with the SSV Division and the Liebstandarte on May 20th. Now they were all under the command of von Kluge's 4th Army and would be helping with the amazing breakthrough in the Ardennes Forest. On May 15th, as Panzers left the end of the Ardennes, their successful penetration caused almost as much shock in Berlin as it did in Paris and London. It was then a race to the sea to cut the Allies in two. The Germans won this, but now their Panzer Corridor was exposed. And as there were one million Allied troops to the north of this corridor, and the rest of the French army to the south, the situation was becoming a perfect storm for a massacre of German troops. Which is where the Totenkopf division came in. 
Having spent the first few days of the war in the West in reserve, the division was told to move up to the Belgian border and then to help protect the corridor, which meant they would have to push on to the south. But when trying to get into position, the Totenkopf ran across the path of Army Group B, or the other way around, depending on who you asked. Regardless, the Totenkopf got stretched out, heading into France, and soon the column's head was engaging with French colonial troops and not able to take advantage of its 21,000 soldiers. This clash came on May 20th, but was over during the morning of the same day. The French, for whatever reason, were not sticking it out when put up against the invaders. The next day saw the SS continuing on to catch up to Rommel, as by now the Totenkopf had been ordered to join the Major General's 7th Panzer Division. His tanks were just past the town of Arras, about 90 miles due north of Paris. But this was the moment, the hopeful high watermark, of the Allied defense, when the Panzer Column would be hit from the north and south, thus not allowing for any mutual support as the entire supply line again would hopefully collapse. But between poor communication and coordination, the southern attack, read French, never got off the ground. The Germans were only threatened from the north, but even this was enough to send the German high command into moderate hysterics. So back to the Totenkopf division, as it was with Rommel and his 7th division, as his panzers were swinging around the town, Ara, in an arc. The panzers were then hit by three British tank columns from the north. Two columns hit the panzers' flank, the third, the Waffen-SS's flank. To be hit in the flank, for several reasons, is one of the worst positions to be in for a unit that is on the move, certainly a group of tanks, as their side armor is not as thick as their fronts. Hence, it was no surprise that some of Rommel's men and some of the troops of the Totenkopf panicked and ran away from the British armor. Yet Rommel was soon on the scene, calming his men down and organizing them to meet the enemy. Division Commander Eck did not have the instincts of a Rommel to do the same thing. Hence the SS column stayed more or less of a mess, and any organized resistance would be coming from the individual regimental or battalion commanders. Fortunately for the SS division, their anti-tank battalion was actually the one hit by the British armor. Unfortunately for them, they were mostly using the 3.7-centimeter rounds, which were no match for the front of the British Matilda II tanks. The British called these shells door knockers. In fact, for them to be effective at all, they had to hit the tank on its side or tracks and had to be relatively close, not the best tactical position to be in for the SS. Still, the SS commanders and the men that stayed did well with what they had. They formed a defensive line, which bent, but did not break. And as such, some of the anti-tank gunners were able to get side shots at the British tanks. 
It took time, time in which SS comrades were dying, but the British thrust lost its momentum. It would have helped had the Allied tanks had infantry support, but as they were rushing down to take advantage of the supposed German weak link, their infantry support could not keep up. But the Totenkopf had plenty of men, men to run around to distract the British armor, not that this alone would have saved them. In time, the British armor could have reduced the line in front of them, but they weren't given that time. That was stolen from them by the SS Division's artillery, namely its 8.8-centimeter flak guns. As the British tanks were distracted and concerned with the SS troops and their imperfect anti-tank guns, the SS artillery were able to open up on the British without concern for their own safety. In time, 23 of the 25 British tanks threatening the Totenkopf were ruined. But even then, it got worse for the British. At 6 p.m. that evening, the Stukas were then overhead, diving down on the remaining British armor. As the British retreated back north, the SS and the Wehrmacht collected themselves. It had been a team effort, not that the SS would get the credit they deserved. Moreover, now that things were once again calm, the dead, wounded, and missing were counted. For the Totenkopf, their number came to just over 100. What happened next could perhaps be explained by elation felt over the victory, or fear of almost dying at the hands of the British tanks. But just after the British left, some of the SS troops vented their emotions against the locals. A few houses were put to the torch, and six townspeople, the reason for their selection is not known, were shot out of hand. But this was not an isolated incident. Another group of SS killed 24 civilians that same afternoon as the British were leaving. The next day, 64 more civilians were marched to a local quarry and killed by machine gun fire. By the time the Totenkopf were moving out, heading north to chase the British, some 264 civilians were left behind, murdered. One young lady, who ended up not being dragged away, asked why they were being killed, for clearly they were not soldiers or a part of a militia. The SS man replied, honestly, because he could. This is war, and since there are no soldiers here, we make war on civilians. Which is a desire felt by many soldiers throughout the ages in the heat of battle. But these specific actions were being encouraged by the SS officers. Getting back to the SSV division and the Liebstandata, after negotiating their way through the traffic jam of various German units, they crossed into France during the morning of May 21st. As for the corridor created by the panzers racing to the English Channel, Berlin decided to stay on the defensive on the southern side while using all available mobile divisions to push the Allies north, which would, hopefully, round them up in either northern France or Belgium, either for destruction or for the opportunity to surrender. 
As events played out, the Allies to the north of the corridor switched up their strategy and were now fighting for time, while the mass evacuation got underway at Dunkirk. And protecting this monumental effort was a series of defensive lines, created mostly by the French and British troops, who were taking advantage of these series of canals. Hence, the hope of those embarking onto ships were counting on the canal lines holding the Germans back. But this is where the three SS units would be sent, again, to see if they could win the day and the approval of the army. Coming at the canal line, in its most northern section, was the Liebstandarte, now a part of Guderian's 19th Corps. On the southern end was the Totenkopf, and in between them was the SSV division, coming in fast. The SSV's job was to take and hold the city of Air at the junction of the La Basse and the Lys Canal. The most forward unit, the Der Führer Regiment, led by Kepler, got there first. Reaching air late on May 22nd, the De Fuhr Regiment made plans to cross the canal the next morning. But early that morning, French armor seemed to come from nowhere. The regiment's 3rd Battalion, commanded by Otto Kuhn, found itself fighting for its life. Despite the fact that the regiment had not faced tanks before, and they knew their 3.7-centimeter door knockers were practically ineffective against the French tanks when facing front, their training and pride kicked in. There was no panic, no one broke, and they dealt with the situation rationally. One crew took the tank's firing, allowing it to come within 20 yards before opening up with its guns, which gave them the best chance of damaging the tank. But still, the tank came on, seemingly about to run over those men. The crew kept firing. Only when the armored vehicle was five yards away did it give in to the shelling. Another crew bundled up their stick-like potato masher grenades and had one volunteer run at the tank and place the bundle into the tank's road wheels or under the hull. When the tank either could not advance after the explosion or the crew inside went outside to see what was going on, the rest of the SS unit would climb onto the tank's top and throw down grenades, killing the tank crew. It would be going too far to say that the French tanks were the vanguard of a larger group, or that there was a solid Allied plan in place. The best the French could hope for was to create a gap in the German line and hope that this would cause the entire line to halt, fearing an attack on their flanks once more supposed French tanks came through the gap. But this was not the case. Not that it mattered, as the De Fuhrer Regiment stayed calm and improvised, one of the greatest wishes of any field commander. So what could have been a French route turned into a stalemate, but the SS troops had reinforcements coming. The French did not. By that afternoon, the Germania Regiment was fighting alongside De Fuhrer, which was enough to drive the French armor away. When the smoke cleared, 54 French tanks or armored cars were wrecked, with more than 3,500 prisoners taken. With the area secured, the SSV division 
moved in and planned for their assault across the canal on the next morning, May 24th. As motivated as the SSV was, they found little resistance in front of them when they crossed over. The same was true when they pressed on to St. Venant, 23 miles or 37 kilometers south of Dunkirk, and again as they reached the banks of the Lys Canal. They were asking themselves, could this be the beginning of the end of the War of France? A bit to the south, the Totenkopf Division reached Bethune and the canal by the afternoon of May 23rd, and probably because the success here had been relatively pain-free, Eck ordered the division over the canal that evening, and this was done without reconnaissance, and the outcome was predictable. The British, fighting for their lives, kept the Tokenkopf at bay. When the next morning came, Eck ordered another crossing, but this time he personally led the Division Infantry's regiment, and through his grit, the men made it across. Soon a bridgehead was created, and then expanded, as more SS troops came over. It had cost Eck 168 men, but they had done it. That was when an order came to go back to their side of the canal, and await further orders. Furious, Eck did as he was told, but the British made him pay a price, inflicting more casualties as his men recrossed. As the last of the Totenkopf crossed back over, the British pressed in, forcing the SS troops to discard their heavier guns and equipment and swim for their lives. After Eck got his men squared away, he went to General Heinrich Hopner's headquarters, and tore into his superior. The two men screamed at each other, as there was no mutual respect or fondness. But Eck could not win, because Hopner's orders came from General von Rundstedt, the Army Group A commander, who wanted his men to rest. And his orders came from Hitler, personally, who made the Holt order official in the afternoon of May 24th. Not that it was any consolation, but Goering had told Hitler that his Luftwaffe would obliterate the Allies as they tried to leave Dunkirk. Eck wasn't the only one venting, though. General Guderian, he was at the northern end of the canal line, and he was ready to finish off the Allies, could barely bring himself to give the order to halt. But he did. Two days went by as the British pulled back to Dunkirk and began ferrying men back home. When Hitler was told of this, and of Goering's failure, he released his panzers and the SS troops. On the afternoon of May 26th, their orders were to wipe out the remaining Allied troops. The German army and the SS divisions would do as they were told, but wondered how many of their men would die, as they would be coming upon an enemy who may be retreating, but had had two days to form up their defensive lines. Still, no one in the army would stand up to Hitler, and as for the SS, they were his personal force until the death. There was nothing for it but to cross over the next morning. <laughs> 